If you're able to, let's stand and we'll read from verse 12 down to the end of the chapter. And our goal tonight is to make it through uh, the end of the chapter through the, with the Bible study here. Verse 12 says, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily, which is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. While it is said today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. Howbeit, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned? whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? But to them that believed uh, believed not, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. We'll finish the Bible study we began last week with this title, What to Do in the Day of Temptation. Let's pray. Lord, uh, tonight as we continue on with this topic, this uh, study uh, Lord, we pray that your word would uh, resonate with us and make sense, and that, Lord, for someone here tonight, or maybe several someones here tonight, the temptation to walk by sight and not by faith, Lord, we would see how dangerous that is. Lord, we would lay to rest uh, our own uh, way of thinking and instead learn to not only be saved by faith, but to continue to walk by it so that we can enjoy the rest and peace that comes to the Christian who will do that. So, Lord, may your word be opened up to us, and may it make sense. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. All right, let's, uh, let's go right to last week's outline and um, uh, fit, uh, just quickly run through it and get a review, and we'll jump right, uh, right uh, to point number three here. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 the author of the book is making the point that Jesus is better than the prophet Moses. And you see verse number three there. It says, for this man was counted, speaking of Jesus, worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses was the giver of the law, but Jesus not only uh, gave the law, uh, he created Moses. Moses rebuilt the house of Israel uh, Jesus made Moses. Jesus made the world. He was there before the foundations of the earth. And so um, Moses' law showed uh, the Israelites that they were broken and in sin and showed them that they couldn't. The Bible tells us in Romans that the laws meant nothing more than to be a schoolmaster, to show us that we fall short. And Jesus came along and not only showed everyone how unworthy they were uh, and how broken they were, but also provided for them redemption in their brokenness, something Moses could never do. So Jesus is greater than Moses. In uh, chapter 2, where Jesus is showed to be the superior messenger, a better messenger than the prophets and the angels, the first admonition in the book is given, and the admonition is this, you will not escape if you neglect the salvation that Jesus communicated and offered when he came. Now he's addressing the saved. Look at chapter 3, verse number 1. Wherefore, holy brethren. So these are folks who are brothers and sisters in Christ 
children of God. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. These are folks that are saved. Look down at verse number 12. Take heed, brethren. This is not written to the lost. This is written to the saved. There are folks who will turn to this passage and say that you can lose your salvation. And no, this is not a passage teaching that you can lose your salvation. This is a passage teaching that there are tears of joy and happiness in the Christian life. And if you want to enter the top tier, then there's a way you must live. There are things you must do. If you don't do those things the way God lays them out here, and you make the same mistakes that the Israelites made, then you will have to live with the same results that the Israelites got. And so he, um, uh, the author of Hebrews takes a lot of time to interweave Old Testament and New Testament or the law and grace and beautifully tie it all together for us. Last week, we began by looking at point number one, the plea of God's spirit, the plea of God's spirit. Verse seven and eight, uh, Holy Ghost saith, hear his voice, hear whose voice, hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. So we are to learn to tune our hearts in when the Holy Spirit speaks We're able to recognize it and we're able to follow it. If you don't know how to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit, there's a good chance either you're not saved or there is so much sin in your life, you have just chosen to drown him out. And so as you begin to yield to the Spirit of God, you will be able to hear his voice even uh, on even a finer and more intense level. I would liken it to if my son is outside playing and I'm inside with the door closed, I can yell and scream and holler, he's never going to hear me. Some folks are saved, but they're so far away from God, he can yell and scream and holler, they're just really not going to hear him. Matthew could be down in the basement on the other side of the house, and I could scream and yell and holler, and he might hear me. If I were to talk in a normal voice, he wouldn't hear me. If I were to whisper, there's no chance. If Matthew was on the other side of the same floor, I could maybe just talk and get his attention. As he gets closer to me, uh, he's able to hear my voice on a lower and lower tone. I want to be so close to God and his spirit that when he whispers, I hear. That's the goal. Hear his voice. And then what? Uh, harden not your heart. When you hear his voice, whether he's screaming at the top of his lungs or whispering in the quietest of tones, do you obey? Because he can whisper, he can yell. If you're not going to do what he says, does it really matter? You ever told your child to do something and watch them go do the exact opposite? How does that make you feel? How do you think it makes the Spirit of God feel when he says, hey, don't do that, or hey, go do that, and you do the opposite? It's a hardening of the heart, which becomes a habit And that habit of disobeying the Spirit of God is going to lead to a place where you are at great odds with God. So we looked at the plea of God's Spirit. That's to hear His voice and harden not your heart. Then we looked at number two, the provocation of the Israelites. What does that word provocation mean? Well, it means to provoke. They were put in a place of being provoked. Remember, they they crossed through the Red Sea. They marched all the way through the wilderness. And just a few months later, they're standing there in the city of Kadesh Barnea. They're getting ready to cross into Canaan and take over the land that had been promised to Abraham that was going to be theirs. One representative from each tribe was taken and sent in. And they came back carrying jugs of milk and honey and grapes of clusters carried on sticks between a couple of men's shoulders. And everybody was excited until the ten of those twelve men stood up and said, We be not 
Abel. We can't do it. What was the provocation? What was the provoking? It was the spirit of unbelief battling against the spirit of belief. There was that day where they had to choose, are we going to walk by faith in our God, or are we going to walk by sight of our flesh? And unfortunately, they chose doubt, they chose denial, and in the end, God sentenced them to death in the wilderness. Because they chose to walk by sight, instead of walking by faith. And so that's where we left off last week. Let's jump in with point number three. Fill in the outline as you go. I would encourage you to do that. And uh, we'll work down through the end of the chapter here. Notice number three, the problems with the Israelites. The problems with the Israelites. It leaves me scratching my head as to how the Israelites could watch God part the Red Sea dry up the ground underneath them, destroy their enemy behind them, send millions of water, gallons of water, out of a flint rock, not only to satisfy their thirst, but also the thirst of their animals. Um, uh, uh, Watch as he uh, uh, sends a plague through the camp when several are rebellious, and watch as he turns the bitter waters of Morris sweet, and and, and watch as uh, Moses' hands are held high and they win a battle against their enemies. All of these things were done. And then, right when they're standing there on the shore, or right, right there at Kadesh Barnea, getting ready to go in, all of a sudden, they still can't believe in God. It leaves me scratching my head as to why. Why could not they trust God after they had watched God deliver them from slavery and provide for them all the way through the desert? The manna, the cloud of fire by day, the pillar, or rather the cloud of fire at night, the the, the pillar by day. How could they not trust God? Well, there were some problems that plagued them. There were some problems that hounded them. There were some issues from their past that hindered them from trusting in God. Letter A, notice their heart problem. Their heart problem. Now, look back at chapter 3. And for those that were not here last night or maybe aren't quite as familiar with the passage, let's begin with looking at verse 7, all right? Verse 7 says, wherefore, and then you see a parenthesis. That parenthesis, the, the closing of that parenthesis ends in verse number 11. Now, wherefore... Uh, and then the parentheses is basically meant to insert an illustration right before he makes the point to us. And so uh, we, we, we were inside that parentheses all week last week, and point three will get us to the end of the parentheses. All right, look down at verse number 10. Again, inside the parentheses, wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their heart. They had heart problems. They had major, major heart problems. Now, um, I, I believe when I get through with this list, you'll have a better understanding as to why they were willing to identify themselves as grasshoppers up against the Israelites. A couple of years ago, two and a half years ago, I believe, two years ago, I preached a sermon, I believe it was 2017, entitled, You Are Not a Grasshopper. Anybody remember that sermon? Anybody here remember that sermon? Nobody? Okay, Angela remembers. I think I've preached that sermon out a couple of times, so she's heard me preach it more than once. Uh, In that sermon, You Are Not a Grasshopper, I talked about Deuteronomy 31, and I talked about some of the giants that kept them 
from moving in. And those giants get in our way just as they got in their way. And in that message, I gave four giants. Write these down under heart problem there. Find a place to jot them down. The first one I gave in that message was past hurts. Past hurts. You know, it really wasn't the sons of Anak they were afraid of. It, it was... It was their past hurts that was keeping them from present future progress. They, um, there was a lot of baggage there. A lot of baggage there. They, they had been slaves. They had been slaves to the Egyptians. Now, what is Egypt a picture of in the Bible? The world or sin? Right? You and I were enslaved to sin before we were saved. How many here were saved after the age 18? Would you hold up your hand for me? You're saved after the age 18? Okay, then you will understand a little bit better than someone like me who was saved at the age of four. But if you were saved after the age of 18, and maybe even the further away you get from 18, maybe the more of this will be true. But very easily, those past hurts will plague you. Those, those, those pains from living a life of sin, the bondage of sin, and all of the baggage that comes with that. And so, uh, past hurts. Sometimes that's other people abusing you or hurting you or taking advantage of you and you have a hard time trusting God moving forward because you have a hard t- you have not fully dealt with the baggage of your past and that giant in front of you intellectually you understand that God can help you overcome it but you look behind you and you say I just have maybe even some level of PT, spiritual PTSD. Now all of a sudden that heart problem, because that's not been properly dealt with, keeps you from moving forward in the Christian life, the way it kept them from moving forward. Why was it that those under the age of 20 could march right into Jericho and just flatten the enemies in front of them? They weren't any bigger and stronger than their parents. They didn't have the baggage of Egypt to deal with. Yeah, uh, one of the other giants I mentioned there, it's on the screen, perpetual sins. What was the sin that the Israelites just really couldn't seem to get, get past? Starts with M. Murmuring. They complained about everything. How many of you here when your kids start complaining, you're like, just stop complaining! Can you imagine how Moses felt with three million Israelites complaining every day? Imagine if you had three million children in your grill complaining at every turn. Oh, we don't want the manna. We want meat. Okay, well, here's some quail. Eat till your heart's content and it's coming out of your nose. Well, we're thirsty again. Uh, it's just a complaining at every turn. Um, we get habit sins in our life that just burrow in and won't let go. And what happens? That sin keeps us from having full trust and faith in God. That, that's a heart problem. People's opinion. People's opinion. If you understand the history of the Israelites, why was it that they continued to worship false idols? They continued to worship false idols not because there was something fun about bowing down to a stone. They worshiped false idols because it was the end thing to do for the other countries. It fit the culture. They were trying to keep up with the culture. 
and they wanted to they wanted to gel and fit with the world around them. And we see that same thing take place today. People will not move forward for the Lord because they're too caught up with the trends of the world and too caught up with the entertainment of the world. And their faith in God lacks because their focus is in the wrong place. And then the fourth giant I gave uh, was about the Israelites, it applies to us, is prayerlessness. Had they been faithful in prayer, had they been faithful in calling out to the Lord in prayer, then their heart would have been in a place to enter in and take their promised land and not fear the giants. I said this a few uh, Wednesday evenings ago, but where does regular prayer come from? Habitual, daily, regular prayer come from? It comes from a realization that I am weak and he is strong. It comes from a realization that I am simple-minded and he is infinite. And if I don't call out on the Almighty to make up for my weaknesses, I'm not going to make it through the day. If I don't call out on the if I don't call out on the omniscient to 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 to, to give me the wisdom I need, then I'm not going to be able to stumble through. I'm not I'm not going to be able to make it through uh, uh, when it comes to my relationships and 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 how all of that works. And so we've got to learn to turn to God in prayer. And the Israelites lacked that prayer life, and they uh, were concerned about people's opinions, and they lived in the sin of murmuring and complaining, and they continued to turn back and want the league singer of Egypt and their heart problems kept them from entering the promised land. Let her be notice their head problems, their head problems. Not only was it an issue with their heart, it was an issue with their head. Look back at chapter three, verse 10. Wherefore, I was grieved with this generation and said, they do always err in their heart. Look at this. And they have not known my ways. There's a lack of intellect here. You have to wonder if when the stories of Abraham and Jacob and and I, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were told, if there wasn't a lot of yawning going on, if there wasn't a yeah, 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 don't bore me with history. Listen, I don't want to just tell you about Abraham. I want to tell you about the God of Abraham that called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees and walked him through and made him wait by faith. For that child to be born. And then, and then Isaac, as he got to the age of 30, and his dad walked him up a mount and said, Son, I need you to voluntarily lay on that altar and trust me that I know that, that God knows what He's doing. And I'm going to plunge a, a knife in your chest and God is going to bring you back to life. And uh, Abraham walked by faith. Isaac walked by faith. And Jacob was forced to walk by faith until his name was changed. But they did not know God's ways. They did not know. And had they understood and learned in their head knowledge of the stories of the of their history, they would have said, this is the next step forward. God led our great-grandfather Abraham here and then gave him Isaac. And then Jacob uh, took the journey into uh, Egypt and, and, and then we populated and grew. And this is just the natural progression back. But they did not know, even in their head, who God was enough to trust Him. Why is it important that you read your Bible every day? Listen, it's good that you come to church, and my goal in your coming to church is to give you a steady diet of God's Word. 
And if you come to church here three times a week, the way most of you do, then what you're getting is a steady diet of the Bible. And if you do that for 15, 20, 30 years, you'll get where you know your Bible pretty well. But can I tell you, you'll never quite learn it like you will if you'll open up the pages of the Bible and you'll read it every day. That's where you're really going to grow. You study for yourself. You meditate on the truth. And I'll tell you what will happen is your knowledge of God will grow. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. The deeper you know God's word, the easier it will be for you to trust God's word. They had a head problem. Let her see. They're hurt. They're hurt. Look at verse 11. Because of their heart problem, because of their head problem, they had to face the pain of not trusting in God. Verse 11, So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Egypt represents sin and bondage. The Red Sea represents the blood of Christ. Passing through that Red Sea represents salvation. Please don't miss the analogy here. It's so important to the passage. The wilderness represents the carnal Christian life. Living the Christian life without the power and Spirit of God working through you. Yes, the Holy Spirit, you have all the Holy Spirit you're going to get the day you get saved. That's not the question. The question is, how much have you yielded to Him? The Christian in the wilderness is walking by sight, not by faith. Entering into the promised land is not a picture of salvation. And entering into the promised land is not a picture of going to heaven. Entering into the promised land is the step of the Christian life where we quit walking by sight and we start walking by faith. We deal with our past giants. We slay them by faith. And then we say, Lord, I'm going to enter into that promised land. And look back with me at verse number 11. What did God call that promised land? He called it rest. Rest. What was their hurt? For 40 years, they had to walk around the wilderness, and they had to suffer. They had to suffer until their carcasses fell. Now, this story is given in great detail in preparation to tell church-age saints that the same thing will happen to us if we don't walk by faith. Number one, the plea of God's Spirit. Number two, the provocation of the Israelites. Number three, the problems with the Israelites. Let's move on to number four and notice the path to spiritual peace. I'm so thankful for God's Word. Not only does it tell us what the pain is and what the problems are, it gives us a path to spiritual peace. Now, I'll just say here that in all of Scripture, in all of the New Testament, God speaks in terms that are very clear-cut and very firm. And His promise is this, rest, joy, and peace. Matthew 10, He says, Come unto Me, all ye that, uh, that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He promises that if you come to Him, He will, it doesn't say might, it doesn't say usually, I will give you rest. If a Christian is yielded to the Holy Spirit of God, and the Holy Spirit of God is calling the shots in that believer's life, the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace. Peace. The Bible has a lot to say about the topic of rest. 
But as human beings, we lack, and even as Christians living in the 21st century, we lack physical rest. We lack spiritual rest. We lack emotional rest. We are run down in these areas. I'm standing up here tonight quite fatigued. I don't say that to complain. I'm saying that because I have pushed myself by my own fault too hard this week. There is a point of insanity where we're not sleeping enough and we're putting ourselves in a place where we're going to become very carnal in nature and unrestful in our spirit. There is a place where a person uh, strays far enough away from God where spiritually they're at great unrest. There is a place where a person strays far enough from God where emotionally they're at great unrest. I was talking to my mom about this topic uh, earlier this week or late, maybe late last week. Uh, and we got talking about it. And I, want, I said to her, I said, Hebrews 3 and 4 are a very powerful passage when it comes to the Christian and this promise of peace. Now, I want to make sure I articulate myself very clear here. And maybe I even clean up some of the things I have said in the past. Satan looks for those transitional times in our life. To really rock us. Maybe it's a teenager going through puberty. Maybe it's a an 18 year old graduating from high school. Trying to figure out whether he should go to college or enter the workforce. Or go to trade school. Maybe it's a new marriage that's just starting off. Maybe it's um, uh, empty nest syndrome. Let me back up a step. Maybe it's post Partum depression that comes after you have a baby. Maybe it's the last child leaves home and there's that identity crisis of, hey, we just poured 30 years into these three kids and the last one just left home. And you turn and look at your spouse and you say, we're lonely. We don't know what to do. Some of you here have gone through that. I do not look forward to that at all. Although I do love my wife, so, you know, if there's a little honeymooning going on after the last one leaves the house, we'll, we'll figure that out. There's, I'm sure there's the positive too. Um, there is that, there are the older years where you enter into menopause or you're going through that change of life. There, there's the losing of a parent. There are these transitional times in our life where we are open to, no matter how close you're walking to the Lord, there, you're open to spurts or times of depression or being down, or feeling lonely, where your emotions are spiked and all over the place. Let me just be really clear here. There is grace, and there is room from God for you to experience all sorts of weird feelings at different times in your life. But in those times, we are to turn our back on any and every sin in our life, and run to the face of God, and have Him help us get back to that rest. And if as a Christian you don't do that, you run from God instead of running to God, you are setting yourself up to enter possibly a long-term unrest in your life that God does not call the Christian to. He does not call the Christian to. Now, for everybody here, you see someone that's in, in, in down in the dumps or blue or going through a hard time, it's not your place to run over and stick your long finger in their face and judge them. It's your place to go over and and help them. Let's look at that here. Letter A, notice our attention. Our attention. Look at verse 12. Take heed, and again, look who it's entitled to, brethren. This is the church. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. If you underline in your Bible, will you circle the word brethren and underline an evil heart 
of unbelief. When we walk by sight and we do not walk by faith, when we take the word of the ungodly, the counsel of the ungodly, as we looked at Sunday night, Colossians 2.8 warns against uh, uh, philosophies that are not rooted in Christ. Warn, uh, again, lines up with Psalm 1, the counsel of the ungodly. When we turn to that, overturning to God and His word to help guide us through some of the most difficult areas and times and transitions of our life, what we're doing is we're exercising an evil heart of unbelief. And I have in my notes here an inward decision. You come to a crossroads. Am I going to walk by faith uh, and trust in a God that I cannot see but I know has saved me? Or am I going to walk by sight? And when you choose to walk by sight at that crossroads, you are exercising, the Bible says, an evil heart of unbelief. And look what happens in departing from the living God. And I have here an outward departure. An outward departure. An inward decision, an outward departure. You come to that fork in the road. Am I going to gravitate to God in those difficult times? Or am I going to walk by the counsel of this world? If you choose to walk by the counsel of this world, what you're doing in essence is saying, God, my faith was strong enough to save me from hell, but it's not strong enough to help me through this difficult time. Wait a minute. Can you think of anything more difficult than taking your feet off the eternal path of damnation and putting them on the path of eternal life? Because I sure can't think of a more difficult task for God to do than that. He had to slay Jesus on the cross in order to save you. Boy, if He can get you from hell to heaven, there sure isn't any other problem in this world that you can face that God can't help you through. And when you come to those times of transition and difficulty in your life, God wants to know, your faith was strong enough to save you. Is it strong enough for you to rely on me to get you through this difficult time? An inward decision to not trust, to exercise unbelief, leads to an outward departure. Oh, I have seen it happen so many times where someone was so devoted to Christ and they turned to worldly philosophies and ideas to get them through a tough time. And before you know it, they were either loosely Christian or completely disowning Christianity altogether. What happened? It isn't that they lost their salvation, but it's that they made an inward decision to exercise an evil heart of unbelief. And it led to an outward departure from that auspice of safety, of being in union with Christ. Letter B, notice our admonition. Look at verse 13. But exhort one another daily. Again, if you mark in your Bible, underline the word exhort and circle the word daily. Exhort one another daily. You know what I was challenged by by this? Well, let me, let me, let, let's move here. Uh, let, uh, below that, notice our care for each other. Our care for each other. I didn't plan to do this, but quickly turn over to Galatians chapter number 6. Look at verse number 1. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think 
uh, himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work. And then shall he uh, have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. Again, bear ye one another's burdens. Exhort one another daily. Do you know that it's my job and it's your job to make sure we're following up on each other, to make sure we're that netting below each other? Do you know that for everybody here tonight, every single one of us, the pastor included, there will be moments where we fall off the tightrope. And if there isn't a church family below us to catch us, boy, we're going to be in that evil heart of unbelief and we're going to land outside of the rest of God. Whenever you fall off, don't you want your church family there to make sure you get back on track? Now, it's no one's going to listen to you if you're the one trying to come and correct someone, exhort someone and say, You're just a mess. When are you going to be spiritual like me? Your faith is terrible. I'm picking on Vince here. Vince is brand new to our church, all right? Um, I'm not talking to you. I'm just using you as an example, all right? Uh, no one likes that pious attitude. Boy, you better get on your knees and you better pray and you better go in the spirit of meekness. And that's how we exhort. We've got to care for each other. You know, what I do on Sunday mornings, um, I'll look out at the crowd and I, I look to see both who is here and who is not here. And if you're not here for more than a week or two, you're probably going to be getting a text from me, especially if I don't know why you weren't there. And it isn't that I'm trying to guilt trip you for not being in church. I'm concerned for your soul. I want to exhort one another daily. Our care for each other. Do you do that? Are you a Christian that exhorts? Now, you may be in a season of time where you're the one that needs to be exhorted. You're the one that needs to be encouraged and loved on. But boy, you get back on your feet and you make sure you're part of that net below the church. Our admonition, our care for each other. Next notice, our confidence in Christ. Our confidence in Christ. Look at verse number 14. For we are made partakers of Christ. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation, uh, our confidence in Christ. Again, uh, part of the reason why we have the Lord's Supper uh, regularly here is so that we can be brought back to a place of reminder of what Christ did for us. We can be reminded of the great love and intense love that Christ has for us in spite of our sin. Christian, tonight are you struggling with unbelief? Do you really truly believe the Scriptures and what it says? Do you believe? Sunday night's message in tonight's Bible study just ties so perfectly together. I love when that happens uh, by uh, quote-unquote, scare quotes, coincidence. But um, the Word of God, do you believe that this book contains all of the answers to every one of life's problems? If not directly, by principle, it has the answer to all of life's problems. Is our confidence in Christ? Or is it in some doctor? Some, somebody that's got a bunch of letters behind their name? If I were to put a, a circle up on the screen that was the size, the height of that screen, 
and I were to have a line move from top to bottom, and I were to say, stop, that circle represents all of the knowledge of the world. Okay, I should have done this, but all of the knowledge of the world. We're going to move the line from the top down toward the bottom, little at a time, and you are to say, stop, when you believe that circle represents the amount of knowledge that the smartest person in the world has. How far down do you think that line would move? Maybe an inch? Half an inch? A centimeter? You take the smartest person in the world and ask them, who lives in the center of China? Directly in the geographical center of China. What's their name? How many children do they have? How many steps did they take yesterday? How many hairs are on their head? How many thoughts have they ever thought in their life? The people who are the smartest folks in the world, you want to put that up against God, who knows everything about everyone, about every fact, who created the world with his voice? Why would you trust anybody else? If you're having a hard time trusting God, I would encourage you to go back to that list of heart problems. I would encourage you to go back and say, how much do I really understand about God in my head and grow in those areas? When we do that, we find a confidence in Christ, and boy, we learn to trust Him. You remember Sunday morning, we talked about tribulation bringing patience. Patience bringing experience, and that experience breeding in us a great hope. Number five, let's finish this quickly. Notice the punishment of the unbeliever. Now, chapter four is going to dive even deeper into what I'm going to talk about here, so we'll hit it as a, as a, uh, uh, a teaser for next week's Bible study. But look at verse number 16. For some, when they, this is not speaking of the Israelites, this is speaking of church age saints, and they'll be compared to the Israelites. For some, when they had heard, it did provoke, howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses, but with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sin, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Letter A, notice, their potential limited. Their potential limited. The Israelites, and there's a parallel to the Christian here, the Israelites could only go so far in their relationship with God, because their faith lacked in that day of provocation. And God said, okay, you will never enter into that promised land. You are condemned to walk around this wilderness for 40 years until you die. Did they lose their salvation? No. They weren't sent back to Egypt. They were just sent to suffer and walk around in carnality until they died. Their, their, their potential was limited. How many Christians? I believe. Look, I'm just going to. I'm just going to tell you my candid opinion. I believe the majority of Christians. You want to put that at 50.1 percent? That's okay. I believe the majority of Christians live in the carnality of the spiritual wilderness, and they they don't really experience a successful Christian life. Look, it might be. Again, I'm speaking about American Christians. It's probably different where there's persecution. But American Christians, maybe 70 to 80 percent, don't live there. Can I tell you where I'm at with this? I straddle back and forth. Some days I'm carnal. Other days, boy, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well and I'm living in that promised land. I seem to hop back and forth. And I have seasons of my time where I'm living in the promised land, but then I'll go back to walking by sight and I'm living in the desert. Anybody else with me? You understand where I'm at with that? Is your potential being limited for Christ because you're walking by sight and not by faith? 
I'll even say this about the medical world. And look, there are people that take what I'm saying to the, to the ultimate extreme and say, never go to a doctor. And I'm not going to say that. I believe in doctors. I think you should go to doctors. But I don't think you should put your faith in a doctor. I think you should put your faith in God. You remember the story in the Old Testament with the king with the foot disease? And Isaiah said, turn to God. And he wouldn't. And God said, okay, no doctor is going to be able to help you then. That foot disease killed him. Because he would not turn to the great physician. It's okay to go to a doctor, but you don't put your faith in a doctor. You put your faith in God. And if he wants to use a doctor to heal you, that's okay. Their potential limited. So many Christians live with so many emotional and physical struggles because they're being punished by God because they're walking in a life of unbelief. Letter B, they're not living in that rest. Letter B, they're rest lost. Look at verse 18 and 19 one more time. And to whom aware, or to whom rather swear he that they should not enter into his rest. And that doesn't mean they weren't saved. That just means they didn't have his rest uh, as a Christian, as, as a born-again brethren, but to them that believed not. They believed to salvation. They walked through the Red Sea to be saved, but they would not walk by faith beyond that. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Their rest lost. I've met so many folks who were just plagued with all sorts of struggles in, in all sorts of ways because they're walking by their flesh And they're not walking by sight. And I would just say tonight, don't be guilty of that. Be a Christian who walks by faith, not a Christian who walks by sight. What to do in your day of temptation? The best thing you can do is say, God, I'm scared. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to handle this. But I do know this. I am to trust you. I'm to be faithful to your word. I'm to be faithful to church. I'm to be faithful to my uh, uh, to my, my, my duties as a Christian. I'm to be faithful to my relationship with you. And I believe that you will carry me through as long as I'm calling on you and I'm living a Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 type lifestyle. Let's stand and be dismissed this evening. And I hope that Proverbs 3 is better understood now than it was before you walked in the door.